Hello and welcome back to the Kielder Observatory podcast. I'm Ian Brannan and joining me this month once again, as always, is Director of Astronomy at Kielder Observatory, Dan Pye. And our special guest this month is a returning guest, actually, Dr Olivia Jones, who's one of the many scientists who's working on the James Webb Space Telescope project, translating some of the data coming back from deep in the universe, deeper than we've ever seen before, really, and translating that into uh, scientific findings and improving our knowledge of the universe. And so we're having a bit of an update over a year down the line after James Webb was launched on what we've learnt so far, what we might learn in the future and some of the surprising things we're already learning thanks to the James Webb Space Telescope. The concentration of elements that we call metals, so anything not hydrogen and helium in, in astronomer speak, is different to what you see in our own solar system. And that must mean that planetary systems across the universe may have very different chemical compositions, very different atmospheres, maybe different ways of forming life. So there may well indeed be life, not as we know it. Find out more about that with Dr Olivia Jones in a little while. First of all, we're going to find out what's been happening at Kielder Observatory and also the things happening in the night sky as we head through April. Spring is here, the clocks have gone forward. We have got slightly lighter nights, but we have a lot going on above our heads in the night sky, some of which you can see with your naked eye. No binoculars or telescopes required. And to tell us more about that is Director of Astronomy at Kielder Observatory, Dan Pye. Dan, welcome along once again, as always. And well, start by telling us what has been going on at Kielder Observatory, because it's been a busy time. I think um, the aurora has certainly been consuming your time quite a lot, hasn't it? The aurora has been fairly active recently, which has been great to see. Um, you know, I'm quite a bad luck charm when it comes to aurora. And uh, I'm quite thankful that I was there to actually see this particular uh, this display and it was it was a very it was a spectacular one yeah absolutely we were we were um, in the midst of delivering our introduction talk during one of our events and the skies cleared and there it was so we stopped doing what we were doing got outside and had a quick look and you know it was it was quite dim it was quite um it was quite diffuse and, and difficult to see at that point. But it showed up quite well on the back of a camera, but actually looking at it with the naked eye wasn't wasn't spectacular. But then, as the night went on and midnight passed by, it was amazing. It was uh, it was the best display I think I've seen since since 2017. And um, the, the closest that I can describe it to, just for, for anybody who's, who's wanting to, to look out for it at this time of year, is that it was almost like, you know, when we get into, into summertime and the sun hasn't disappeared below the horizon over, the, over towards the north, it was almost you had that, that glow of light across the northern horizon, but it had a bit of structure to it instead of just being... Um, the glow of the sun, there was like a, an arc that was visible to the naked eye. It was quite subtle, um, but certainly bright enough to, if you were in a darkish location, you could you could quite obviously see it. And you could see, uh, quite obviously, these pillars of light rising from the horizon every now and again as well. And yeah, it was, it was amazing. It was, it was great. I loved it. There's pictures on the on the on the Facebook and stuff. <laughs> yeah, check them out yourself. It was pretty impressive and uh, fairly rare. But this time of year, you've got a decent chance of seeing it, and probably again, um, it's around sort of the change of the seasons, isn't it? Where you get the best chance. Of course, summer it's it's pretty light most of the night, but then September, October time, um, we're getting as we discussed um, previously that. Um, 
we're heading slowly but surely over the next few years to things getting stronger again and to the, to the solar maximum. And so the, the opportunities should be increasing, if anything, to see the aurora. It should be, yeah, absolutely. And, and quite right. During the equinoxes is when we, when we get the most... Uh, the most activity, the, str- the stronger activity, uh, that's that's the better chance of seeing it, I guess. And we're still not quite sure why that is, but <laughs> we certainly see more activity around around the equinoxes. But over the next year or two, that's when we're starting to reach the solar maximum. That's when we get um, much more frequent bursts of this aurora making juice from the sun that then comes and batters our magnetic field, rips it open, and then some of that material is allowed to flow into our magnetic field and energise our atmosphere and give us that uh, beautiful auroral display. So, yeah, hopefully hopefully over the next couple of years we'll get some spectacular occurrences. And this is right across the UK as well. I think that's really important to point out. This isn't just an isolated thing to the, to the north of the UK. Um, this is this is right across the UK. So the other night, regardless of where you lived across the UK, chances are you probably would have been able to capture... Uh, some aurora on the back of your camera if you had a clear if you had a clear night um the the most southerly uh, image that i saw was just outside of devon um so it was certainly across much of the country the other night yeah, yeah so plenty of chances to see it and uh, of course you don't ha- actually have to be at Kieldrop observatory in order to see it so if you can just get yourself anywhere where there's a bit of dark sky and the whole of the northumberland uh, national park qualifies for that or indeed um anywhere like the north yorkshire uh, moors as well i think is now um, dark sky uh too and i think there's a village there i saw on the news uh, recently a village uh, in in north yorkshire trying to be a, a dark sky village and getting all the all the residents to turn all their lights off and stuff at night so they can actually go and uh, and, and look at the dark sky um you know it, without going into the wilds as well so it's great that there's lots of people trying to um preserve the the, the night skies and the dark skies to to give everyone a better chance of seeing what's going on in in the universe um other things then going on heading into the springtime now we've we've also seen these planetary alignments as well which people might have been looking for is that continuing for a little while as we head into april or what sort of things should we be looking out for as we head into spring yeah i mean murky the, the one the other night i felt like was a bit it was a bit of a media blow up which didn't really it wasn't it wasn't really a spectacular thing to see it was a bit of an underwhelming thing for a lot of people i think um it was something that we call a planetary parade where we end up with five uh, planets in alignment in in such fashion and that was uh, mercury jupiter venus mars and um and neptune as well and of course we can't see neptune with the naked eye um and mercury and and jupiter uh, set really, really early. So just after sunset, Jupiter and, and Mercury were disappearing below the horizon. And by that time, that's when you were able to see the other planets. So really, it wasn't that you could see them all at the same time. You could just see them over the course of a, maybe an hour or so. Um, but it was it was still quite cool. It is quite cool to see uh, things in alignment. And I think that the reason why it's so cool for me anyway is because you really get a sense of structure to our, our place in the solar system. You can see all of these things in alignment means that that's you looking into the plane of our solar system. And everything is laid out almost like on a flat disk-like plane and orbiting around the sun. And you get a real essence for that when you see it across the sky like that in, in alignment as such. So... Uh, and I think what's also quite cool to see is look at the photographs of that scenario 
uh, from the UK. So if you go outside and have a look at it in the sky or if you just see someone share a photograph and then try and see someone taking a photograph of it five hours later in, uh, in the east coast of America or eight hours later on the, east, on the west coast of America and see how that alignment has changed and you'll see that the moon has moved quite considerably and potentially even some of the planets may have moved just just slightly as well across the sky and that gives you that real sense of motion everything is moving and moving quite quickly as well and moving now into the the springtime obviously slightly lighter nights which can be a little bit of a problem but what uh, what are the things that the springtime night skies bring that that we obviously don't get the rest of the time of year famously springtime skies are very much the uh, the time to look for deep uh, galaxies and and things like that so as we start to move away from that We've got we've still got Venus for a little longer. We've got Mars for a little longer. Neptune's hanging around as well. Not that it looks <laughs> spectacular. It's this little tiny dot because it's really far away. Is is Neptune? But it's still, nevertheless, amazing to see a, a planet at such distance. Yeah, quite an interesting planet as well. Um, and then we've just got to look forward to the return of noctilucent cloud season. I think is the uh, the thing that I'm looking forward to most. That comes back in May. And hopefully we'll get some really good ones. Last year I felt was a disappointment, but this year could be better. Ah, it's one of your favourite things, isn't it? The uh, the noctilucent clouds. You love a it bit is. of that. I do, I do. <laughs> I would argue that they're more visually spectacular than the aurora, um, in the UK anyway. I think uh, when you start to go up to the Arctic Circle, the aurora, of course, gets really great. But in the UK, certainly noctilucent clouds are a lot more visually spectacular. It's OK. That's something to look out for. And as far as Kielder Observatory is concerned, uh, moving into this time of year where there's lots of bank holidays and school holidays are actually not that far away now, the kids' sessions are uh, back on the agenda once again. You've got um, the, the, the space kids and the uh, the, the introduction to the, um, to the to the universe and, and the solar system and, and all those sessions that, that happen at, uh, at Kielder Observatory to uh, get the kids involved. Absolutely. And, and tickets are moving fast as always. Uh, we're always... Very much sold out months in advance. Uh, when we start to get to the summertime, that, that actually does increase as we move towards the summertime as well. So it might look on the website now, if you were to go on now, you might think, oh, there's loads of availability. In in recent years, we've noticed a trend of there's a few weeks where loads of tickets just go very, very quickly. Um, so if you're looking to book for the school holidays, now is a really good time to get that done while there's still availability there because um, that availability will go uh, fairly quick. And this year, um, we won't be uh, we won't be putting on additional events to satisfy um um, the demand. So if you if you really want to come to those events, you you've really got to book them. We've got no last minute changes this year. Okay, so grab those sessions while you can. But there's plenty of, of stuff available now for the for the year ahead. So have a look, plan ahead, and hopefully see you at Kielder Observatory very soon. Uh, finally, down before you go, one thing to look out for uh, for for those who have got their uh, telescopes and their binoculars, they're looking for a bit of a challenge. Uh, you, as director of astronomy at Kielder Observatory, uh, give us your pie in the sky 
treat for for April, a mission to look out for? Yes. So I think the, the, the obvious thing to look out for in the sky this month is the Lyrid Meteor Shower. Now, that peaks on the 22nd of April, but actually it starts to take effect from maybe a week's time or so. So we usually get two weeks either side of the peak of the shower where we start to enter into the debris field of the uh, of the comet that's left its dirt there that gives us this meteor shower. So over the next couple of weeks, we'll start to see an increase in the amount of meteors from Lyrids, um, which will be coming from the perceived direction of the of the constellation of, of Lyra, which rises a little bit later in the night um, across in the east. And these ones are typically known as being quite bright ones. So, so you might get a really nice bright one on your camera. Um, they're not massively frequent, but they are quite spectacular if you get them. So see if you can capture one on your camera. And if you can, um, tag us in it on our social media and uh, and we'll give you a retweet and what have you at Kielder underscore Obsey on, on Twitter and at Kielder Observatory on, on Instagram and Facebook. And of course, let us know how you get on. We'd love to hear from you and, and see your images and we can maybe share them uh, with the rest of the world as well. Dan Pye, Director of Astronomy at Kilda Observatory. And Dan's going to stay with us as we head into the next part of the Kilda Observatory podcast, where the focus is very much on the James Webb Space Telescope. The Kielder Observatory podcast. Now, we can see lots of things from Kielder Observatory as we point our telescope deep into space, but nothing quite like the James Webb Space Telescope, which was launched a little while ago now. But um, over the last year or so that it has been operational, there have been some great findings already. One of the people involved in this mission is Dr Olivia Jones. She's part of an international team of researchers who are, uh, first of all, got the James Webb Space Telescope operation but now translating that information that comes from deep in space, parts of the universe that we've never been able to explore before, and uh, making sense of all of that data and what it means for our understanding of the deeper universe. And she joins us now. Now, the last time that we spoke to you, Dr. Olivia Jones, you were involved in the launch mission, and um, it was just before Christmas, the year before last, and you were saying it was going to be a very, very hectic time for you, potentially, and maybe quite a stressful Christmas as you watch the James Webb Space Telescope launch and hopefully come to life as planned. And happily, that did happen. So so how was it then, uh, watching over this launch? Hello, everyone. Yes, it's great to be back. And yes, the launch day was very nerve-wracking. Um, it, it was uh, possibly one of the most nervous uh, Christmas... Uh, anticipated Christmas mornings and nervous Christmas mornings I've ever had. Um, it was the, the first 30, 30 minutes as well, especially when, when the launch was happening... Um, when all the separation was occurring, that, that's when I was on the edge of my seat and, and hidden behind a cushion for some of it. Um, but then it, what was great is uh, that, that something happened a bit early um, that happens automatically, and that was the unfolding of a, a solar panel so it could power itself because it was operating on battery up until that point. And because that happened a bit earlier, uh, maybe a minute or so, I knew that launch had gone very well. So after that, I really relaxed and had a very good Christmas day after that. 
Yeah, you can treat yourself to an extra mince pie or something like that. So that was all good. Now, obviously, it took a little while for, for everything to, to fully unfurl and, and get up and running. But then the data did start coming back. And we saw those amazing first images from um, deep in the the universe. I mean, these are places that we've we've already looked at with, with Hubble and uh, got a, a lot of understanding of. But it was a great comparison of in terms of the quality that the James Webb Space Telescope is going to bring, wasn't it? So were you in, surprised in any way with with what you saw the quality of the images um no i was surprised i knew it was going to be really good um i'm just amazed at how really good it was um a lot of these some of the very first observations taken um were an area that i've looked at for about 10 years in, in my astronomy career um and it absolutely blew that away um like the, the very very first image taken with a movie instrument for instance um the, the previous versions you could see some stars um, with Spitzer and with um, Wise, but with Webb you could see all this interstellar medium structure between all the stars, you could see a lot more stars and you could start to see galaxies in there that haven't been seen before and I was just like, wow. Uh, and, and that was just with just one very quick image and yeah, from that moment onwards I was just like, this is going to be amazing. Uh, I, I knew it was going to be amazing but even more uh, <laughs> amazing than, than, I, than I thought it was going to be. Um, and that was very good for a lot of my science because I've had two um, major image releases with Webb uh, of programs that either I've been leading or been part of. Um, one of them was this Wolf Rayet star called WR140, which has 17 shells of dust around it uh, in this sort of semi-spiral pattern, um, which is beautiful. It really is beautiful. And um, we may be expected at the most, we may see about five when we're planning those observations, but to see se- at least 17, if not more, and so stable in this is very chaotic massive dying star was really exciting and the images are very 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 beautiful and then another one i got was on the very first day of science operations um this is a star formation region in a nearby galaxy um so i was the very first person in the world to download this data and it just was um it was just the structure the 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 detail you could see you could see individual stars you could see the processes around individual stars, so they have jets and all sorts of things as, as they're falling in, and you've only ever been able to see that in our own galaxy before. But, um, yeah, with Webb, we could see this for individual stars, but we could see the entire region as well, and that was rather amazing. And as we did some analysis on the science of that, we discovered that a lot of these protostars that were forming in these extreme conditions that uh, resemble the high redshift universe actually have the conditions to form rocky planets, or, or eventually form rocky planets around them. Um, and that that was not known before, if that would survive in these sorts of higher conditions. So that, that was a, a very exciting, it's a very beautiful picture, but it's also a very cool science result as well. So I've, I've very much enjoyed these six months post-commissioning activities and getting science data. It's been lots of fun. It's been much talked about the James Webb Space Telescope. We, people might be familiar with the phrase, the Hubble telescope which has been around for a long time now and he's getting to the back end of its life obviously but they're still doing some work um you are part of the the british group of scientists who are working with the data there are similar people around the world all doing their own research with the data coming back from the james Webb space telescope just give us a quick sort of layman's terms comparison between hubble and the james Webb space telescope in terms of the the quality of the information you get we've some of the very first images were deep fields um, and these were taken actually within a, a few hours actually with Webb. Uh, to do the similar thing with Hubble would take uh, many, many, many weeks. So these are just like a teaser of, of some of the early results. 
Um, and they, they, those images and deep field images resulted in lots and lots of galaxies being proposed to be very, very high redshift. And I think my definitions of, of high redshift has changed a lot since Webb was launched. Um, with Hubble, that was around a redshift of 11. So that's a look back time. It's still quite a long way back to the early universe. But with Webb, some people were proposing things as high as redshift 16, um, potentially seen in, in some of these observations from their models. Um, but they're just candidates, right? Um, you, you can look at them, and but what you really need is spectroscopy to confirm them. And um, a friend and colleague of mine, Emma Curtis-Lake, currently holds the record for the highest redshift galaxy ever discovered and in, in, in confirmed in spectroscopy, and that's around a redshift of 13. So a redshift 13 is approximately 4 million years after the Big Bang, so when the universe was only 2% its current age. Wow. I mean, that's that's the fringes of the dawn of time. <laughs> that's a last way back. It's very impressive. Um, and I expect that to go down quite significantly. Um, I, I think maybe something at Redshift 16 is on the cards. Um, I, I expect um, in, in the not too distant future. So it, it is a very exciting time for the assembly of galaxies in the first light in the universe, which was one of Webb's core mission goals. Wow, that is pretty incredible to see so far back that we can. It's still possible to see so far back in time as well. Amazing, and we're saying about keeping Hubble in the same spot to to do some deep observations and and the comparisons that Webb can do it much quicker. If we were to keep James Webb in one particular spot and observe it for weeks and weeks and weeks and months, is there a plan to do that? And and which area of uh, of the universe are we going to be pointing James Webb at to to get this greater understanding soon? So I think there's going to be there's a few programs doing very deep field observations on both the Hubble ultra deep field uh, and some other famous patches of the sky where mostly empty if you're looking at it with your own eyes. But um, as you go further back and have more powerful telescopes, you see a lot more galaxies. Um, and so I think the longest I'm, I'm thinking of at the moment is around 70 hours of observations. And some of those have been taken. Um, but not the full program yet to get the very deepest, most distant objects. Um, and what you're looking for there is very, very small red blobs in the images. So not anything that has structure. If it has structure, it's too early and it's too close to us. We want to, you want to look for the reddest blobs you can see in this data to try and discover these most distant galaxies. And um, yeah, there's several teams doing this, but it, it's hours, a it, few days of observations compared to um, what Hubble did. And if you want to go at that factor of deeper to really push it, I think you may want to talk about a few weeks of observations. Um, that's not been scheduled yet. I think there may be after after this first year, there may be some people proposing to go deeper and deeper. Um, and it's going to be exciting times to really push that boundary. Um, you really want to have this sort of wedding cake type structure. You want to go have a big wide field to start looking things and keep zooming in and zooming in and zooming in, making your tears and going deeper and deeper to see how these galaxies change uh, as the universe uh, gets older. And by getting older, we're still talking about the really early days of the universe here. It's, uh, it is not too far long after the Big Bang. We'll never get there um, to the Big Bang with Webb because there wasn't any light. Webb can only detect light and heat. So it's only after the first stars start to be made will Webb ever see. If you want to really, so if you want to see the very, the, 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 part, the early part of the universe when it first formed in the Big Bang, you need the radio. And, and we can see that on your own TV. When you had um, cathode ray tube TVs, the static, you still detected some of the science from the Big Bang in that. 
but this is the first light. This is what you're looking for. So from the dark ages to, to when the universe lit up. And that's what Webb will hopefully get to. So with the first light, just uh, is that um, really big individual stars that, were, that you're looking for? Or is it, or is it kind of uh, a, another structure like a galaxy that's... Because uh, I always imagine it like, oh, there was big stars and then there was galaxies. Um, yeah, we're not entirely sure exactly of the assembly of galaxies either. So I, I imagine that the most distant things we'll see will be very, very early primitive galaxies. Um, with lots and lots of these massive, they're, they're called um, population three stars. So these are going to be made out of unusual elements. They're going to be very big. They're going to live fast. They're going to die young and make lots and lots of light in the process. But we expect those early galaxies to be composed of that. And that's what we hope to see. Um, so those very, very first stars, because no one's ever seen a population three star yet either, which is one of the earliest stars we ever expect in the universe. So, yeah, I don't think we'll see an individual star at these high redshifts. It'll be a galaxy comprised of it. But actually how galaxies form all their structure and change over time is one of the other big questions for Webb. So a lot of these high early universe candidates um, may not turn out to be early universe candidates. There may be something a bit weirder along the way. But that will tell us a lot how, how our spiral galaxy formed. How, how do you make these different structures? It's still an unanswered question. And do you have an idea as to what the kind of sizes are? Um, of of maybe like those those first stars and the first galaxies. Do you have a an expectation? <laughs> well, the very very distant ones, no, because they're we can't resolve them. They're they're so far away that they just like a they'll just be a little point of light on the sky. So we, you won't be able to tell anything about their structure. You might be able to work out their mass. Um, this is slightly this is not my field, so I, I can't tell you exactly how they do this, um, apart from doing some models and different properties and sort of go, we think the mass of the material they made is this, but the actual details is better left to someone else. Some of the discoveries uh, obviously do make it into the into the papers and people will have seen these, particularly the uh, the discoveries of exoplanets and, and, and we're getting closer with, with all of this information. That was the big thing, wasn't it? One of the big things that, um, that James Webb was going to... Uh, give us more info than that we've never known before really about um, exoplanets and we're starting to discover these examples now um the trappist one system is is one such thing that uh, people will have seen and some of the planets in that um do look a, a little bit more like the, that we will be familiar with a bit more rocky um earth-sized sort of exoplanets as well and some of them bigger we're finding little solar systems here and there so um tell us about first the trappist system but the, but the search for exoplanets and the information that james webb has um given us about them and, and whether they potentially could at some point either in the past or in the future uh, support life in some way so the trappist one system is a very exciting um system of star a star and planets it's probably one of the closest systems that resembles our own solar system um, we've been discovered so far. This was um, a system discovered with, by the Spitzer Space Telescope and, in fact, uh, was the only result from Spitzer that made it into a Google Doodle um, of all these seven different planets surrounding this star. Uh, so that, that's quite an amazing feat, given that Spitzer was one of, the, one of NASA's great telescopes um, and operating the infrared. So we discovered these planets all orbiting each other in this, this interesting motion, um, but now, uh, that, that's all you could really do with the web. You could discover them, you could see their orbits, you could try and work out their properties. 
but with the web you can look at their atmospheres um, and so we're learning a lot more about the individual planets in this system and, and that is very exciting because it's um, a star it's, it's not too uh, it's been proposed that some of these planets may be in that Goldilocks zone where life life may be present and a lot of these planets are rocky so they're not sort of like the gas giant Jupiters, the super hot Jupiters that are very close to a star and have no chance of life. Some of these might, might potentially have that sort of conditions necessary. And so the first results are starting to come out. Um, and so, unfortunately, the, the first galaxies, the one that, sorry, not the first galaxies, the first planets around the Trappist system, they've started to release the data and the results. And TRAPPIST-1b, which is the closest planet to the sun, unfortunately has no kind of atmosphere, um, which is quite disappointing. It's just a, a rocky blob in, sp in space orbiting its star. Um, so that, that, that's a shame, really, because that, that's one of the seven um, ruled out. But I think there's still three more that may have the conditions for the existence of liquid water on their surface, but it's definitely not that one. So it's, um, I think the ones you really want to look out for are Trappist E, F and G, because they're a bit further out away from the star. We've got very good naming conventions here for planets. Uh, but they are, they're sort of in that mid-range, so they're not sort of like um, a Mercury or Venus. They're in the, the boundary where Earth, Mars would be type zone. It's sort of in the middle it's not of their solar system, in the Trappist system. And so they're, they're the results that I think you really want to keep an eye out for. And these exoplanets are, are fascinating, and we're finding new ones all the time, it seems. Uh, Smetrios is a new exoplanet that's been found uh, deep in space, and um, it's been dubbed Hot Jupiter because it's similar to Jupiter, but it has some very big differences as well. It is 20 times bigger than Jupiter, they reckon. Um, interestingly, though, it has carbon and oxygen uh, in its um, atmosphere, which has been detected by the James Webb Space Telescope. So that's one thing that's interesting. Um, and the other thing is it's really hot as well. It's hotter than anything in our solar system, including Venus. It is so hot, 1425 degrees Celsius. So it's not uh, a very hospitable place, but a fascinating makeup of the, the chemical elements that, that James Webb's discovered around it. I definitely wouldn't, wouldn't want to be visiting there. A lot of the planets that have been observed so far with Webb, you really don't want to go anywhere near. Uh, a lot of these things are really, really hot, as you said. Uh, really, really massive. I'm not sure they have it. If you get to a surface, it'll be a very, very, very long way down. Um, I'm not sure anything would survive that. Um, what is really interesting about this, though, is the concentration of elements that we call metals, so anything not hydrogen and helium in, in astronomer speak, is different to what you see in our own solar system. And that must mean that planetary systems across the universe may have very different chemical compositions, very different atmospheres, maybe different ways of forming life. So maybe it's not looking for carbon and oxygen-based life in the future, you may be looking for all sorts of interesting things along the way. So the signatures that we may know and look out for uh, and hope to see, like methane, and some other sort of ozones and signs of industrialization in the atmosphere that would really be compelling signatures for potentially life on a planet might not be the same in these other planets. So I think understanding the diversity of atmospheres and unusual chemical abundances is, is key. And I think this is what Webb is really good at doing and designed to do. Because, um, yeah, you really want to know that before you even start to try and interpret is there maybe life there or not on these planets. 
Um, I really want to be anywhere near this system. Um, being so much more massive than Jupiter, it's sort of in that halfway, it's, it's almost a failed star as a planet rather than um, what we would normally conventionally think of as a planet. It must be more closer to the mass of the sun than it is to a uh, Jupiter or, or planet that you would naturally think of. Um, and yes, most planets we've seen are very close to the star itself. They orbit in about three days. So yeah, so your year is three days long and very, very hot. Um, in this case, uh, with carbon and oxygen in the atmosphere, in one of the very early science results from Webb, um, from the first images and spectra released, there was a lot of um, there was another exoplanet looked at, and that had ridiculously high steam in the atmosphere. There was lots of water, but it was it was really really hot. So you, again, you won't want to go anywhere near the surface of that planet, and, and have any hope of not being boiled um, or steamed to death uh, in, in seconds. Um, but that diversity of atmospheres is so unlike anything we have in our own solar system. And I think that's the exciting point that we're starting to see that now. So we're seeing different makeups of, of atmospheres and, and gases around some of these exoplanets. And taking that one stage further, obviously we're looking for any signs of life. Does that mean that signs of life could potentially exist in formats that we are currently unaware of, that uh, that we never thought possible? And I suspect that we're going to see quite a, a large range of zoo of planetary conditions in the next few years and decades to come, which is, I think, we may need to start thinking a bit more widely about how the universe and planets forms and how unique Earth is in comparison. Uh, I think that's quite exciting to see that we are quite a nice, um, happy place for life to form, which is quite rare in what we've seen so far in the planets. Earth is obviously in this moment in time, this um, current few billions of years, I suppose you'd say, uh, it has been a hospitable place and we have all the things we need for life. It's not always going to be that, that way. Earth is not always going to be a hospitable place. Earth didn't start out as a particularly hospitable place either, going back uh, as many billion years as we're seeing now into the past through James Webb. Is it possible that some of these planets that we are seeing through Webb, these exoplanets, because they're so far away and we're looking back in time so deeply, that by now these could have evolved into something a little more livable, potentially? That is certainly true. At some point, our planet is going to be destroyed as our sun expands and dies, uh, probably around five billion years from now. Um, so we've got a little while before we need to find another planet we need to relocate to, um, but not quite yet. And so, yes, uh, as the stars, the host star or stars change and evolve, um, the conditions it will change within the planets in the, planets in the solar system surrounding that, surrounding that star or stars. Um, Exactly how that happens um, is something that we don't quite know yet. Um, and it, again, you want to look at a lot more planets, a lot more conditions in their atmosphere to learn more about them, to see uh, statistically how, how the planetary central star uh, affects all the rest of the planets around them. Um, again, though, I wouldn't want to go anywhere near any of these stars that are stupidly close, uh, these, these planets that are stupidly close to the stars. Uh, I stay well away from them. They're, they're not going to last very long, even less than the Earth. So, uh, yeah. You want, you want something a bit further out and less bombarded by radiation if you're looking for anywhere you want to have a nice little day trip to in the future. 
Yeah, uh, we we'll need to uh, arrange the transport to get there, but it sounds good. And what have we learned about black holes from the James Webb Space Telescope? Because that was one of the other parts of uh, of the mission, wasn't it? What have we learned on that? Because people might see one or two stories about some supermassive black holes that have been discovered very, very deep into the universe. Tell us about those. Um, so we're looking a lot at these type of galaxies called active galactic nuclei, um, AGN. And so they are galaxies that have a supermassive black hole in the centre. Um, and so they have very different types of properties. You can see material falling into these black holes um, through their lines and through their measurements. And so we can learn a lot about the black holes in the centre of galaxies with Webb. It's also wonderful. It's part of evolution of galaxies that I talked about earlier. You can really see how these changes the universe evolves. And yes, one of the recent discoveries um, was... 570 million years after the Big Bang. So you already had that supermassive black hole formed in the centre of the galaxy. The stars start orbiting it. Uh, or, 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 or are, sorry, the stars are orbiting it. Um, and from, so you see that in our own galaxy as well. Um, the, the very centre you see the stars orbiting, that's how we know it's there. But in these other galaxies where you can see the entire thing, it's the material falling in and that accretion into the black hole that is the signature of these supermassive black holes in these more distant galaxies. But I think that's really impressive that we're starting to see this at quite high redshifts as well. So again, looking back in time to the earlier universe, not quite so much as the most distant black ho- uh, galaxy seen, but from around 30, uh, 300 million years to 570 million years, it's not that big a time scale in, in the lifetime of the universe, which is 13 billion. So... It shows that the galaxies are forming these systems and structure quite early on. And I think this is also going to be pushed back earlier. But more discoveries around this is quite exciting. Yeah, 570 million years, you know, it, it is it is a quite, quite a time. But it's, uh, as you say, in, in the history of, of things, it shows that black holes have been around you know since the the early parts of the of the universe as well doesn't it and and some fairly big ones too so um i I don't know what that really says to what that information um gives us as as such but it it shows that uh maybe the makeup of the universe has been you know quite consistent going going way back one of the exciting results would be if we see a star forming galaxy that has a black hole in the center to find out if there is a if that's causing star formation to happen and making these new generations of stars, um, that's on the goal for several science programmes looking for candidate galaxies that may or may not have a black hole in the, in, in the middle, um, but has a lot of interesting properties going on in terms of is it making lots of new material, is it making new chemical elements, that sort of thing. Um, and it's very possible that having a black hole there in the centre may actually cause a lot more other exciting things to be going on as well. So that, that's a, a big question for Webb in these first years of operation. What are the things that we can expect from Webb um, over this next year, um, into heading into its second full year of, of operation, I suppose? What are the things that you're working on, that you're looking for answers to, that, uh, that people can maybe look forward to over the next year or two when you get that data back? Um, so immediately, uh, in the not-too-distant future, I'm looking for the formation of a black hole or a pulsar, um, neutron star, in the centre of the supernova, supernova 1987A. So I think probably the second half of this year, you, we might have seen discoveries of a black hole or a neutron star forming in real time. So that's going to be very exciting. So um, we have that data. It was taken not too long ago. We're starting to analyse it and we'll try and rule out what is happening. 
So um, I, I think that's kind of that's that's the not these supermassive black holes. This is a stellar type type black hole, but in a nearby galaxy. So I, I'm very excited about that um, and what that will tell us about the end stage of a, a, a star, a massive star's life. Of how does that um, form? Because cu- currently that's that's been looked for in the 35 or 36 years since 87A exploded and hasn't been seen yet what, what the end product is of that supernova explosion. Um, in other galaxies, trying to confirm um, what some of these candidate very high redshift early galaxies are and how far they are with spectroscopy is going to be a big part of, I think, the next a year or two. Because these now we have these candidates at um, 16, like 17 redshift you want to then go and get the spectroscopy follow-up to confirm and work out their properties. And so a small fraction of those candidates will turn out to be these really high-redshift objects, but they will completely blow away the record when we do discover them. So that's going to be the next bit. We've taken the images now for the next stage to confirm if they are real or not. And then near to home, it's going to be looking at more different exoplanets, taking more images and new discoveries of exoplanets, and more about the atmospheres and more about their properties. And... I think that array of science um, from the, the nearby universe with uh, planets all the way to the, the very first light, I think we're still going to be making groundbreaking discoveries at the moment and transformative understanding of the universe. To me at the moment, every single time I download JWST data, a new discovery is there and it pops out straight away. It's, I've not been disappointed yet, which is amazing for a telescope that's doing a very good job. But but it's, it's an exciting time to be an astronomer. You have to throw away all the textbooks and write new ones. And uh, it's hard to keep top of, and on top of all these wonderful new results that are coming out. But uh, keep a look out in September because it's going to be a first results, uh, a year after Webb first results conference in Baltimore at Mission Operations. And so I think that's when you're going to see a lot of stunning new discoveries being revealed to the world. Well, it sounds like you've got a busy time ahead, Olivia. Just um, final question then. This time next year, if we were to get you on then, a year further down uh, from where we are and, what, two years of operation for for the Webb Telescope, what are we going to be talking about a year from now, do you think? Oh, I have no idea. I hope there's something brand new, something that I I have no idea about that uh, completely takes the the astronomy world by surprise because I think it's all well and good doing confirming theory but it'd be quite nice to make some new theories and new observations that baffle everyone so hopefully there'll be something absolutely no one knows anything about that we'll discover along the way well dr olivia jones thanks very much for joining us one of the researchers um, making sense of all the data coming from the james webb space telescope and firmly involved in that mission thanks for joining us on the kielder observatory podcast and thanks to you as well for joining us once again this month don't forget to check out some of our previous episodes and to subscribe to this podcast so you get all the latest episodes as and when they arrive and keep up to date with all the events and happenings at the kielder observatory don't forget more information available on the main website kielderobservatory.org and uh, we'll catch you on the next episode of the kielder observatory podcast coming soon